0: Okay, could we turn now to Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, and that's on page uh, 1,188, 1,188. In fact, 1189 was Hebrews chapter 4. I gave you a wrong steer there. So we're starting at verse 14 on page 1189, Uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now let's ask the Lord to help us as we look into this portion of his word. Oh, Father in heaven, you who control the hearts and minds of millions of people, Lord, you who are in control of all events that are happening on this planet, we come before you, Lord, knowing that we need your grace and help to understand your word and then to apply it to our lives. And, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will indeed strengthen us and help us through your word this evening. Show us beautiful and wonderful things about yourself and about our lives in this word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now you'll see I've put as a title, God is still on the throne, but I've actually uh, put as the key text, Hebrews four sixteen. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now I hope as the sermon goes on, you'll see how that theme of God is still on the throne links up with the throne of grace. But the first thing we need to understand when approaching this, this uh, text of, uh, where we're, uh, we're told to you know, confidently um, come before the Lord. With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace we need firstly to understand the conceptual framework which which means the ideas framework in which the writer of the Hebrews was actually um, putting putting, uh, this this wonderful um, statement. You see to the right of the Hebrews was addressing Jewish Christians. It it seems reading uh, between the lines and, and reading actual statements made that Uh, These Christians were often being persecuted by their fellow Jewish uh, uh, comrades. And their faith in Jesus was being attacked by people who were throwing Old Testament texts at them constantly. Trying to prove that uh, their belief in Jesus the Messiah and their belief that this is the way they should be following was wrong. And they were telling them that they were betraying their ancestral religion. They were traitors to their family And the writer to the Hebrews is concerned to show that from the beginning the gospel of Jesus the Messiah is the gospel for Jews first, and then it goes out to the whole world. And he he talks uh, right at the beginning in verse one of chapter one. You consult it. He talks about the fathers, and he means by that Jewish men. And this implies, of course, that he, the man writing, was a Jew writing too. Uh, other members of the Jewish family so Hebrews 1.1 God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways In in these last days he's spoken to us by his son so the writer of the Hebrews is wanting to show the continuity of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah with everything that's gone before in Jewish history including the temple the tabernacle and that's where this phrase, the throne of grace, comes in. And I, so I'll try and link it uh, to, the, uh, to uh, the title, as you'll see as we go through it. Now, the writer of the Hebrews has at various times talked about aspects of temple worship. He calls Jesus the great high priest. He describes uh, various parallel things that Jesus does as parallels to the the Jewish high priest now the first thing we need to understand is is that the tabernacle and the temple was God's way of teaching the Jewish people about the eternal realities of God the tabernacle which was a tent with various artifacts within it, The the temple which was a fantastic building uh incredibly expensive, in which the worship of God was located. These were meant to talk about eternal realities. Now, I, I'm going to give you an example. Supposing I was to say, well, I'm going I'm to teach you about the solar system. You know, these massive bodies, um, many of them vastly larger than planet Earth, some, some roughly the same size, some smaller. But supposing I was to say, look, I've got this box here, I've got the whole solar system in this box. In this small box, which is a foot square, you say, What are you talking about? And well I say, Well look, I've got the planets, look, I've got I've got Jupiter and Saturn and I've got uh, I've got um, you know the Earth there and I've got and they're all scale sizes and you'd say, Oh yes, well yeah, yeah my kids have got that as well. <laughs> Big deal. But you see, this is a, a teaching tool for children. To help them to understand something about something that is vastly bigger than a box full of little, little uh, plastic balls. And the temple and the tabernacle were teaching tools that God gave the Jewish people was to instruct them about a much greater reality. About the eternal realities of how about men and women can get right with God and have a relationship with God. Now, the word throne is, of course, used in the Bible about God on a number of occasions. Firstly, to do with Him being in control of everything the wind and the waves, the mountains, the seas, the planets, the galaxies. His rule over them is complete. And we're told that the heavens are God's throne. Now, here's an interesting point, you see, because um, we saw coronation uh, a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Uh, where a earthly monarch sits on an old wooden uh, thing like this, actually. In fact, this looks a bit better than the, the wooden uh, throne of coronation. I mean, uh, you, you know, it's so old, it looks a bit ragged, doesn't it? Now, the thing is that um, God doesn't actually sit on a throne. <laughs> you know, God God is in, God firstly uh, is infinite. And there is no possible throne that could possibly match the dimensions of the living God. Um, Heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? Says, says the Lord. This is Acts 7.49. Or what place is there for my repose? In other words, uh, the Lord doesn't need to sit down. He's vastly outside of the dimensions that we can understand. Uh, by uh, you know, by, by our, our normal thinking. That we could ever think that there would be a, a place, a seat big enough for God. Now, of course, the Lord may, indeed on the Day of Judgment, create a throne, a great white throne, which we will see on the Day of Judgment. But that, again, will be a visual aid to us to understand the fact that, that God has complete authority in in the universe. Because that's what a throne symbolizes. The throne ultimately symbolizes the reigning king in the olden days, when kings had actual power, not, not merely it were constitutional um, constitutional symbols of government but when kings had actual power the throne symbolized the fact they were in total control if they said something from the throne it had to be done thrones are necessary pictures for us to understand power in in general and it may be that as I said on the day of judgment there will be a great white throne that all human beings will see um, that uh, the law will use to make clear that this is the time for judgment Thrones aren't necessary pictures in the in, in the Bible to 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 refer to to power. And even today, you know, um, uh, we we have a symbol of of, uh, of military power or, or governmental power. The White House, you know, the Oval Office in the White House, and uh, the, the the seat of the president, and with the flag behind him, often this symbolizes. The absolute power of the United States. And the same probably goes for a lot of other different uh, different governments. And in the Old Testament, God talks of uh, ruling over all things awesomely. In 1 Kings 22 verse 19, a prophet called Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne... And all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And an awesome picture of of greatness. Now, you know, sometimes we think fearfully of the power of a man to get a suitcase out, sorry, a small briefcase out, input various things and then press a button and nuclear weapons go off and nuclear war would start. We, we often, you know, tremble at the thought that that may one day happen. That one or many more people might actually start pushing buttons. And it is a fearful thing, but let us remember this about the God that we worship. That he has the power in an instant to destroy and initiate the death of galaxies in a microsecond. The God with whom we have to do can at any point and will at some point destroy the whole universe by fire and then from from it or through it create a new heavens and a new earth. He is a God on the throne and indeed we are to worship him with reverence and with awe. He is also holy. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah had a picture of a throne And it was surrounded by angels, this picture of of the throne. And they were all crying out, holy, holy, holy. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted. With the train of his robe filling the temple. The Lord is in his holy temple, Psalm 11 verse 4. The Lord's throne is in the heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Now Isaiah himself, when he had this experience of the holiness of God, actually also had the experience of the words of Romans 11, uh, sorry of uh, Psalm 11 verse four. His eyes, behold, the, his eyelids test the sons of men. And Isaiah was tested and knew, knew that his life was exposed before a holy God. And he cried out, "Woe is me! I'm doomed because my eyes have seen." have seen the holy one and i'm a man of of unclean lips and i and i and I, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips also of course leading on from that is this this awesome picture of the great white throne that actually is a very fearsome thing revelation 20 verse 11 i saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And on the basis of that book of life, eternal life or eternal death is meted out. And so we have these pictures of thrones of power, thrones of holiness, thrones of judgment. But our text says we come to the throne of grace. The throne of grace and indeed the throne of mercy. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Now, well, what throne of grace was the writer of the Hebrews talking about? I've said that we need to uh, investigate these words on the basis of the context, his framework of ideas, his concepts. Well, he's been talking about the tabernacle and the temple. So what, th- what throne was in the, in the temple? Well, the answer is that the, uh, the Jews were taught, and it's there in the Old Testament for all to see, but often we don't actually examine carefully many Old Testament texts, so we're, we're not familiar with them. But in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, they had a box. Now, actually, this box was only about four feet long, which I suppose is well, probably slightly less um, than the size of this table. And then it was uh, two by two. It was uh, two feet high and two feet broad. This box. The box was called the Ark of the Covenant. It actually ha- it could have poles attached to it, and it had a lid. It had a lid, and on the lid, of course, there were also there was uh, cherubim which of course we get the ridiculous idea of cherubs from which is like some kind of cute little kid angel uh, but of course to the ancient Hebrews these cherubim were symbols of, of titanic power they, they again were awesome and, and uh, um, amazingly powerful beings uh, close to God. Now the thing was about this box called the Ark of the Covenant was that this was a symbol of of God's presence and God's rule. Because basically at the times when God... Uh, 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 I'll start that out again. When, when people decided to come um, to worship God, they couldn't come into the, the holy place, the most holy place where this, this uh, ark was located. They, they had a representative who would go in. They'd be waiting outside wanting to get a blessing and their prayers answered. And he would offer sacrifices on their behalf For the forgiveness of their sins and the blessings on the land. Now the thing was that this was above this box. The presence of God was there invisibly, wonderfully. There was a glory coming, uh, of course, from the presence of God. But the Shekinah glory was not God himself, in himself, because God is invisible. It was the glory that was coming from him, which was a dangerous glory. If anybody actually uh, you know, came into contact with the Shekinah glory, they would, be, they would be knocked down dead. So what actually happened would be that the high priest would, would uh, light incense and there would be great billows of smoke going up and so that as he came to the box, actually he would be protected from the danger, the fatal danger of coming into the presence of a holy God. Now, this box... Was considered to be the throne of God. And you might say, so, well, that's weird. I mean, what a small little box. I mean, it is, you know, it, it, although you may see pictures of it, actually, it wasn't that very big. It wasn't that big. It was only four, four to five feet long at, at the most. But look, we must understand this. This box could have been as big as Mount Everest, or it could have been as big as a galaxy. But this would still be, even if the box was as big as all the galaxies in the universe, this would be a microscopic dot compared to the infinite power and majesty of the God whom we worship. And so although it was only a small box, this was a throne. This was where God actually came, localized his presence, in order to deal grace to people. This is the whole point about the tabernacle. You see, inside this box, there was a a scroll. It contained the law. Now, the problem is that the law in this box was really the sentence of death for mankind because the law condemns all of us. As we look into the Ten Commandments, we find out we have broken these laws, if not in action, but in, in our thoughts and in our hearts and in our minds. We've been angry. We've been hating. We've been prejudiced. Uh, we've been lustful, we've been proud, we've been rebellious, we've been idolaters. We know all of these things. And this scroll was an imminent threat. We've talked about the threat that uh, people had from the Shekinah glory. But even worse was the threat of this scroll, which actually, uh, when applied to our lives, led to the writing of our own personal scrolls, which are brought out on the Day of Judgment, of all of the ways in which we have failed God. So this box contained great danger. And yet, this was the throne of grace. Why? Because it is precisely on this box and not only God himself appears, but actually doesn't just appear in judgment, but in mercy, because this box was the place where blood was sprinkled. Because the role of the high priest was actually to sacrifice an animal and then spread blood all over the top of this four foot box. And this look forward to the coming of Christ, when Jesus Christ will be the substitute for us sinners, when his blood would cleanse us from our sins. And when in fact our sins will be completely blotted out. Now, you know you may know um, you know the um, the properties of x rays, you know, that when x rays are being used, you you People often put lead blankets over themselves so that they they don't get X, you know too much X ray into them because you might get cancer from it, and you may know that even cosmic rays can't get through solid lead. It's a covering that protects us. Now, the name for the lid of this box, the name for the lid of this uh, lid of this box, is the mercy seat. The lid of this box is a covering. The literal word for uh, for it is a covering. And so the lid of this box with the sprinkled blood on it protects those who are sinful from the law. Protects those who are sinful from judgment. Because and why? Why is is this uh, lid effective, potent in doing it? Answer because the blood has been sprinkled upon it. And this looks forward, of course, To the fact that Jesus Christ's blood is potent, is able to save completely, to forgive, and to restore our relationship with the living God. And so, instead of there being a faithful encounter with God on the day of judgment, when we are judged by the law, when our own uh, lives uh, and our, our own past is brought out, actually, it's been blotted out by the blood in just the same way as the blood protects, uh, uh, protected in those days, uh, looking forward uh, to the death of Christ. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews says that, of course, the, the, the blood of sprinkled, uh, the sprinkled blood of bulls can't do anything. This was a type of something was, that was to come, that is truly effective. And this blood of Christ covers us, blots out our sin, and grants us a new relationship with God. Now, I want to just um, say that, in fact, uh, if there's anybody listening online that uh, may may, uh, uh, not yet have have had their sins forgiven, just understand this this, um, thing that I'm talking about may sound very technical, but actually it's simply very personal. Jesus Christ personally took the bullet for us I remember seeing this on TV uh, uh, in the, in the uh, 80s, early 80s. March 30th, 1981, a, uh, a policeman, uh, sorry, a, a presidential guard called Timothy J. McCarthy um, was uh, bringing the president in, um, and uh, suddenly a guy took out a gun and was about to shoot, and uh, essentially he shot six bullets, but this man... As he was getting President uh, President Reagan into his car, he spread himself and took the bullets. Hinkley, the man who, who, uh, who shot, wasn't, wasn't that great a shot. Uh, he got, though this man got a shot in the chest, which could easily have killed him. Fortunately, he recovered later. But let's, this was a very personal thing. I mean... I mean, if I was President Reagan, how thankful I would be to this man for the rest of my life. I don't know who he was, but I certainly would have been. A man that spreads himself to cover me so that he takes the bullet. It's a very personal thing, isn't it? Now, if you are a believer, you must understand this. Jesus took the bullet. He took the nails. He took the spear. He took the crucifixion for you. The Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Now, supposing you're not yet—you don't—you're not yet forgiven. You haven't come to Christ. Uh, you're sitting in a, in a room somewhere uh, in your home, and you've always wanted to become a Christian. Well, understand this: you may have confidence to come to the place of mercy and grace, because that's what this text is telling us. It says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now you see, this box I've been talking about, the Ark of the Covenant, is a symbol of what Jesus did on Calvary when he died. In fact, it's really a symbol of Jesus himself. You may have confidence to come to him, the Holy One, who bled and died for you so that you might be forgiven. You may have confidence. The thing is, of course, that often people, you know, are afraid of Jesus Christ. But hear these words, and those of us who know these words, well, let's think about them again and think how wonderful they are. When Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are heavily laden, who are weighed down. I will give you rest. I can remember that on occasions I've had really heavy suitcases, and me being, you know, people spot that I'm I'm at least 30. Um, well, anyway, I'm at least 40. Um, will actually uh, come and say, "Oh, can I can I take your help you with your suitcases?" And I will say, "Well, oh, yeah, of course you can." And I'm happy because I'm you know you're trying to go up these 20 or 30 steps at, at a at a uh, train station and, and they, they take the burden and that's, that's really great but how marvelous it is that the burden of sin that would drag us down to deepest hell has been taken away by Jesus who went through hell on the cross so that we could be forgiven. So if you say you're listening online or perhaps in the church come to Jesus come to me all you who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Now I, I also wants to talk to us who are believers you see um, the writer of the Hebrews is is recognizing a fact that many times Christians have a confidence problem he says look um, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace now we can be confident because and there's a whole load of reasons which um, he has already given in verse verse 14 onwards. So I'm not going to read it all again, but I'll just say the things he said. We can have confidence since we have a great high priest. He's a great high priest. He's not there's no there's there's no imperfection in him. He's full of love and sympathy. He's one who's offered his own blood as a sacrifice. He's not someone who doesn't sympathize with us. Jesus actually cares about us, empathizes with us. Actually. Um, He has more care and compassion and empathy than any other human being around. Now I've met a few Christian men and women in my life that have really been such a a comfort and so good and so kind to me personally. And the thought that Jesus Christ is is a thousand times more compassionate and empathetic, it's, it's fantastic to think of that. He's passed through the heavens This isn't just someone who who, who, uh, erupted into history and then disappeared into history. He's actually come into history and then passed into heaven. He's exalted and glorified and lives forever to make intercession for us. So we can have confidence as believers that we can come. Now, um, you know, the truth is that many um, believers go through periods of their life when we lose confidence. Confidence. Now, why do we lose confidence? Well, it can be lots of things. Some people have depression problems, um, but many of us, I think most people, it's because of sin. We've stopped walking with Jesus, and uh, we've uh, we've actually uh, found ourselves. We found ourselves drifting, and uh, not not finding um, not finding. Um, um, within us to actually come back to the Lord. Now again, there may be someone in church, someone online who's a Christian that is only too well aware of their own sins, failures and setbacks in their life. But there is an unfailing source of forgiveness and renewal in Jesus himself. You remember the story of the the lady who had a a flow of blood that, that doctors couldn't sort out. And she was so desperate, she pushed away through the crowd just to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. And touching the hem, just, you know, something that was, you know, just the very extraneous part of of his clothing. Power surged into her life. Now, we have the power to touch Jesus. And I don't mean physically. But I mean our spiritual, God has granted to human beings a spiritual life. And we have the power to talk to him and he hears us. We have the power to touch him and power comes from him to us. And that power to, to forgive our sins. You know, we're so aware of our sins, sins we've done in the past, particularly if we, you know, someone at this moment in time may have backslidden really badly and it may be crushing them or how they've been, a particular thing they've done, they don't even like to talk about it. With uh, or name what they've done to some, uh, to, you know, to any other Christian, but Jesus will forgive. You just go to Him, touch Him, talk to Him, and power will go forth from Him to cleanse you from your sin. If, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember when Peter was was filled with depression and grief when he realized that he had denied Jesus and we're told he went out and wept bitterly and and you know within two days I'm sure he was still in a state of complete shock now interestingly enough we one of the first people to see Jesus alive is Peter Simon Peter and uh, it's quite remarkable, really, because the Gospels don't tell us uh, specifically of the event. We have uh, the event of when when uh, Peter uh, ran to the tomb and found it empty. We don't really have the event when Jesus uh, described of when, how when how Jesus appeared uh, to to to, to uh, Peter without the other disciples there. But actually, Paul tells us in one Corinthians fifteen five, he appeared to Kephas, then to the twelve. And very interestingly enough, in Luke 24, 34, when the people come back from Emmaus Road, what are they told? The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. No, no description of, of that, that meeting in the rest of the Gospels. But those two sources interreact one, and support one another, it actually happened. Now that personal meeting of, of Peter with Jesus... Firstly, it, it changed him, and uh, no doubt he he did feel forgiveness and new forgiveness. But still, days later, he still was clearly not yet actually right back on the road to uh, to to all-out service for, for the Lord until the Lord met him in, and we're told in the you know in the story in John twenty that uh, that. Uh, the disciples uh, were in Galilee fishing, and Jesus uh, uh, spoke to them, shouted out to them as they were fishing, and Jesus told Peter where to where to throw his the nets, and they brought in this fantastic flow of fish. And Peter recognised it was Jesus and and came to him. And then Jesus said these words, "Peter, do you love me?" Now, here is the challenge to to you as a believer: Do you love Jesus? Not do you like him, but do you love him? Do I love him? The Lord wants to not um, undermine our faith by asking us if we love him. If we don't love Jesus with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength, that doesn't mean we're not a Christian. But Jesus does want us to challenge ourselves, challenge myself. Do I love him? And of course, three times he he was asked by um, Jesus, Do you love me, Peter? And finally, Peter you know I love you and and Peter then after each occasion Jesus said feed my sheep do the work that I have given you to do now when we come to the throne of grace we receive forgiveness the Lord wants us to love him and the Lord wants us to renew our lives in service of him and uh, it's called the throne of grace and finally just final point is it's the throne of grace where we will find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Now I've already mentioned the mercy bit, that of course that's to do with our forgiveness. It's to do with the mercy is to do with past sins. But finding grace to help in time of need is talking about future future needs. We know that the uh, The Hebrew Christians needed encouragement in going on with the Lord, in working for the Lord and in good works. They also needed encouragement because they were being persecuted and there was a threat of persecution. There was a threat of discrimination being cancelled being worse than cancelled being actually deleted by the enemies by being being killed and in all of these circumstances there's, there's grace to help in time of need and in our own lives we need grace with our looking after our families doing our job properly the challenges of the Christian life in our individual life and in our church lives there's so many, I mean each one of us has an individual menu that we could work out of the grace that we need in this coming week but it's there and we may confidently approach the throne of grace Coming to the, the Father through Jesus Christ our Savior and get mercy and grace in time of need. And that word, uh, in time of need, uh, a, a, one Greek scholar said that uh, a perfectly suitable translation of that, of that is in the nick of time. Just when it is needed. Seasonable help. Help in a good time, before it's too late, when there's still time to seek. God is still on the throne of mercy and grace to us and how wonderful it is that we can go into the future however long we've got on this planet we can go into the future with confidence knowing he's going to give us that grace let's thank him for that bless him for his love for us.